Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles again and turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we're picking up our reading in verse 23, and we're going to make our way to verse 31. Before we read God's Word, let's ask the Lord to instruct us in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is Your Word, and Your Word is the truth. We ask that You would sanctify us by the truth. Bring the power of Your Spirit to bear upon our souls, that we would be enlightened in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and thereby grow in grace, that faith would be increased. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Acts chapter 4, again starting in verse 23. This is on the heels of Peter and John being set free from prison. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Thus far, God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. After the great Charles Spurgeon, that 19th century preacher, finished his earthly race, his publishers took 40 of his addresses given at the weekly prayer meeting at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and made it a book. And the book began with a title that came from the first sermon that was in there. Only a prayer meeting. Spurgeon said as he surveyed the people who had had gathered for prayer on a particular prayer meeting evening, what a company we have here tonight. It fills my heart with gladness and my eyes with tears of joy to see many Hundreds of persons gathered together at what is sometimes wickedly described as only a prayer meeting. That attitude certainly attends to our day, doesn't it? It's only a prayer meeting. It's not really important. It has no real priority in the life of the church. Well, Spurgeon went on to express grief that so many in our churches fail to give attention to united corporate prayer. And it's not that prayer in private or prayer in partnership with another believer is insignificant. 
But there is a unique blessing that comes to God's people when they pray together with one accord, agreeing on something in prayer. Now, that phrase, with one accord, it's just one word in the original, but it's used in our text in verse 24. They lifted up their voices together, or literally, with one accord. It was also used in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where the apostles, the women, Jesus' mother and brothers were devoting themselves to prayer with one accord. And then we saw something of a theme verse of sorts in the book of Acts, Acts 2.42, how the church were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Clearly, a foundational element of the life of the early church was corporate prayer. Prayer inside and prayer outside the worship service. And yes, it's true, we don't have a command in the Bible. Remember the weekly prayer meeting. We have remember the Sabbath. Nevertheless, the church had a habit of prayer. And that habit provoked them when persecution came to engage in what I'm calling an impromptu prayer meeting. We've seen an impromptu sermon, and now we get an impromptu prayer meeting. It's the kind of thing that happened all over the place in the Old Testament. Exodus 2, under Egyptian suffering, the people groaned to the Lord. 1 Samuel 7, when the Philistines attack and Samuel cries out to the Lord. Hezekiah and Isaiah in 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 14 and 20, when enemies come against Asa and Jehoshaphat, Esther 4, prayer isn't mentioned, just the fast, but they always did it together. And then Daniel 2, when Daniel and his friends pray together in crisis. Are you discerning a pattern here? The church in trouble runs to prayer, specifically corporate prayer. We're going to think about that together, and we're going to walk through this text seeing five things. We begin, firstly, with crisis in prayer. Crisis in prayer. Let me remind you of the scene. The previous day, Peter and John had gone up to the temple to pray, the hour of prayer, the evening sacrifice time, about 3 p.m. They encountered the lame man. They healed him. The healing stirred a crowd. Peter Preach the gospel of salvation in the resurrected Christ that all would repent and believe. The temple authorities don't like it. They move in. They don't want this talking of power in the name of the risen Jesus. So they take Peter and John, throw them in the slammer, waited the next morning to call them to account, intimidating them. That was the aim. But Peter and John, we saw last week, boldly declared the leader's sin. You guys crucified the Christ, but God the Father vindicated him and showed you wrong by raising him from the dead. And the leaders threw their weight around trying to press them and threatening them. No longer speak in this name or preach at all. Don't talk about Jesus. Peter said, well, you guys can take up your ridiculous rule with God, but we are going to keep preaching in the name of Christ. Well, that undeniable miracle and the undeniable boldness of these men led the leaders to see, we can't do anything to these guys. So they put them out, they let them go, and Peter and John come back to report to the church. And that's what we're seeing in our text. No doubt the church already knew they had been imprisoned and were being interrogated, but we read in verse 23, as soon as Peter and John were 
freed, they fled to their friends, literally to their own. It's a word that usually denotes your own family or your own people. And that's a significant thing to note by itself. They fled to their own. They were Jewish men standing before a Jewish council, Jewish authorities in the previous scene. But those Jesus Jesus haters are not our own. They may share ethnicity with us, but that's not our people. You see, here we have God's people being referred to as a family of faith, not of ethnicity, a family built on allegiance to Jesus Christ. Because what makes you part of the people of God is not blood, it's not nationality, it's not outward covenant relation, it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they tell their family in Christ what happened. And after hearing all the details, particularly the command, threatening them further to stop speaking in the name of the risen Jesus, the family of faith immediately turns to prayer. And the emphasis of the original is on the unity and purpose of their prayer. Literally, and when they heard emphatic, with one accord, they lifted up their voice to God. They all felt the spiritual pull to move to God in prayer. They have, if I can call it this, a spiritual instinct to run to the Lord the moment trouble squeezes them. And what motivates this prayer was at least this. They believe God cares about them and listens to them. They believe the Lord who is the God of the world is concerned for their trouble. Further, they believe that God is glorified when we, His weak, frail people, come to Him and acknowledge our need of Him and thereby look to our Father for help. Brethren, our God is praised when we evidence that we depend upon the Lord and that He alone is our God. And we tell Him, you alone are God. And if we are to have spiritual vitality, a spiritual perspective in the midst of our trouble, and a submission to hard providences, then it's all going to be fueled by prayer. We must, as Paul will pray for the Ephesians and the Colossians, be strengthened, that's an outside power, be strengthened by the Spirit with all power, be strengthened so that we would have endurance and patience. Our instinct should be to run to our Heavenly Father as His children and tell Him all of our hearts. Well, is that our instinct? Do we have this impulse of faith, not just on a personal level, do we have it on a corporate level? We hear about things going on in one another's lives, and it could be a joyous occasion, it could be a grievous trial. But are we, Romans 12.12, rejoicing in hope, and I can't quite capture the way that the original conveys this, but it's, y'all all ought to be rejoicing in hope, y'all all ought to be patient in tribulation, and y'all all ought to be constant in prayer. The Lord tells us things like, call upon me in the day of trouble. Cast your burdens on the Lord. He is abounding in steadfast love to those who call upon Him. The Lord is near to those who call upon Him. 
Well, do we crave His nearness? Do we run in our fix, whatever it is, to seek His covenant mercies? Do we gather together and acknowledge that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble? Of course, we must not only pray when trouble comes, but the pattern of our lives should form a desire to go to God when crisis strikes. And in this crisis, the church provides, beloved, a tutorial in prayer. They look to God, and we're going to see this, as maker, revealer, ruler, redeemer, equipper, and abiding presence. This prayer is filled not with copious requests. Lord, do this. Lord, do this. Lord, do this. Lord, do this. It's rather filled with repeated adoration. It is full of God. It's full of Scripture. And let's reflect on these things as we move through it. Secondly, see, creator and reviewer. Creator and reviewer. In verses 24 and 25. Now, as with the sermons in Luke, which are summarized in their many points, again, just to remind you, when you read a sermon in the book of Acts, that was not the whole sermon. You could read it in about a minute. That is not the whole sermon. Don't, don't start getting this idea in your head. You guys should be preaching a lot shorter sermons. No, no, no. You can see every time, and with many other words, Acts 2, uh, Peter exhorted them. We just get a summary. What's like that here in the prayer? We don't know everything that was said, but Luke records a spirit-filled and spirit-authored summary. And what's noted here is striking. They begin, verse 24, addressing Sovereign Lord. And that title is really infrequent in the New Testament, though it's used in Revelation 6.10 of the martyrs under the altar praying, O Sovereign Lord, faithful and true, how long shall we await until you avenge our blood? But this title, Sovereign Lord, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the double title, Lord, and then all caps, God, which is Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. And the title recognizes both the relationship that God's people have to God as our covenant God, and that He is the God who is the master of the universe. And it's really that second theme that really stands out here. Persecution is about to ramp up, just as Jesus said it would. But while enemies threaten and will soon be emboldened to do worse than threaten, it's not as though our Father has lost control of the situation. No, who is He? He's the sovereign Lord. He's the Creator God, the One, verse 24, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is a quotation of Psalm 146, verse 6. And it's cited to press the truth to the heart, but also to adore the Lord for who He is. This is the God who rules. Look at what He has made. Brethren, prayer is praise. We come to God extolling His works, telling Him in prayer who He is and what He has done. But as we do that, we're also reminding ourselves who is this God we approach? He is the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The next line of, of Psalm 146 says, the God who keeps faith forever. He's the covenant God who rules everything 
and will carry out His purposes. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and there's no realm where His authority does not reach. So whatever is in the heavens or in the seas or on the earth, and it can be the blazing sun, which is powerful, or the great sea monster of Leviathan, or man kicking against the goads of God's sovereignty, God rules all creatures, actions, and things. And if you don't believe that, I don't know how you live a moment. God rules. These snarling Sadducees and priests are not outside the realm of God's authority. And this is a great truth for us to remember when we come to pray, particularly when we're praying in the face of trouble. We don't draw near to a God who is limited in power and sovereignty. He rules everything. And even when wicked men do wicked things, when they malign and murder, our covenant God is on the throne. If that weren't true, there would be no comfort, no hope for triumph, no peace in trouble. We would all be left to rogue forces to work their will, and the cause of Christ would never advance. But that is not the truth. The church is saying, Lord, I don't know that I totally understand why the trouble has come. Maybe I don't grasp, Sovereign Lord, Your particular purpose, but I know You have a purpose. And I know Your purpose can't be thwarted. But not only are you the creator, you're also the revealer. That is, you take the big principles of your purpose and you give them to us. The secret things belong to the Lord. That's true. There's a lot we don't know. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. Or how did William Cooper put it in his great hymn? God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We are not left as the people of God to wallow in the darkness while wicked men terrorize us, appearing to triumph. We serve a sovereign God who is also a speaking God. I don't know if we're amazed by this like we should be. Our God talks to us. He's given us His truth. He's revealed Himself. And look at what how the verse refers to this. Verse 25. He has spoken. The sovereign Lord was addressed, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, beloved, I want you to note everything that's said right there about Scripture. Psalm 2 is about to be quoted, but Luke is clear to tell us that God, or the sovereign Lord, has said. God spoke. God reveals Himself. God did not have to do this. God does not owe us a conversation. But He stoops in His kindness to make His way known, to guide us. He tells us of His ways, His works, His will. And how did He do it particularly? Well, God spoke by the mouth of our father, David. It's interesting here that Peter is noting the church's covenantal relationship with David. It's kind of like Jesus when the Pharisees and the scribes said, Abraham's our father? Jesus says, no, he isn't. No, your father's the devil. Because if Abraham were your, your father, you would do the deeds that Abraham did. The, the Sadducees have no claim on David. David's our father. Brethren, David's our father because we come in his faith. But then God had spoken through David, or as Peter will put it, 
in 2 Peter 1.21, the Lord takes His human instruments and He is pleased to speak through them. And while men like David were in themselves flawed men, nevertheless, when God spoke through David's mouth, it was still God who was speaking. So what David uttered wasn't David's interpretation. It wasn't David telling us his plan or his will. God spoke through David. Now, how in the world could David be preserved from misunderstanding or corrupting the speech? Well, it's because, look at the text, he spoke by, that is by the agency of, the Holy Spirit. And the very fact that the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is called holy should be enough to teach us that nothing that God is communicating through man is false. Falsehood, error-filled messages, couldn't be holy. But here the holy God sanctifies the mouth of David by the Holy Spirit so that what David says is God speaking, God uttering His unerring, infallible, authoritative word that can always be trusted. What a crucial point this is. There's never a season where the Bible isn't under assault. Never a season. Because that's the devil's MO. Did God really say? That's how he always works. Are you wise to that in your own life? That the devil always aims to provoke you and me to doubt the authority, authenticity, inerrancy of the Word of God. And you have to fight back with the truth. No, this is what happened. The Lord has preserved His Word by the power of the Spirit. And then our sovereign Lord doesn't only make all things and rule over all things. He comes to guide us with His Word in a sin-marred world. He gives us infallible truth to hold on to when trouble strikes us. I want you to notice something about this prayer. Do you see that there's already more theology in two lines of this prayer than many of us have in long prayers that we pray? Further, do you see, while crisis is thick, trouble is looming over the church, in their distress, they do not skip adoration. Now, I know there are occasions in Scripture when there's simply the fervent cry, Lord, help me. The Canaanite woman, is, she comes to Jesus in Matthew 15. That's what she says. There are other times in the Psalms where David bursts out at the beginning, answer me or vindicate me. But then David will go on to adore the Lord. But I want us to recognize the brief yet sustained focus here in this prayer on adoring God. Brethren, when Jesus, to talk, when Jesus taught us to pray and He gave us a form of prayer, the Lord's Prayer, what was the first order of business in approaching God? Our Father, who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be Thy name. And then there are two more lines immediately following that are God-focused petitions about God's kingdom and God's will. Well, that pattern should be noted. Here is the church in trouble. But the church hasn't even made a petition yet. And when they do, it'll surprise you in verse 29. But their prayer begins in praise, even in the thick of a crisis. 
And this is a lesson that we all need to learn. Because if there's any area of struggle that I have noticed in my own life as a Christian and in the lives of the people of God as a pastor, even with pastors, is a struggle to adore God, to thank God, to note His names, His attributes, His titles, His works. Scripture-filled prayer, as you're seeing here, is full of these kinds of things. I'm sure, if we're honest, we all feel the need to say with the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. But are you willing to be taught to pray by looking at the prayers of the Bible? Are you willing to engage in Scripture prayer because Scripture teaches you to pray using Scripture? Are you hiding God's Word in your heart that you might know how to call upon Him Do you know God? Are we just entertaining an idea that we think we know what He's like? But do we say, Lord, this is what you are. I'm telling you what you said about yourself. And therefore, I come to you on that basis. I'm not trusting in my own heart, my own interpretation. I'm trusting in what you told me about who you are. That kind of prayer has power. Not power in you. The power is in the Word of God. And God is pleased to be moved by His own Word. Well, let us learn how to extol God as our Maker, as our Ruler, seeing the kindness He's given. Let us, as Calvin put it, dig up by prayer the treasures that God has put in His Word. All the promises He's declared to us. This is the way that God we pray. Third, we see conspiracy and triumph. In view of the present crisis, the Lord, excuse me, the church in prayer looks back to an overview of fallen man's attack on the Lord, or the Lord and His anointed, His Christ, which is what Psalm 2 is about. Now, verses 25 and 26 quote Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. But you should always note when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they're not quoting it like we might quote something in a paper just kind of ripping out of context and using it for our purposes, they're always quoting the larger idea that's going on in the passage. The question, why did the Gentiles rage and so forth, assumes something that's futile. Like, the Gentiles raging is a bad idea. Why is it a bad idea? Well, you're rebelling against the Lord, who's the ruler of all things, but Specifically, the Lord who has set His King, Jesus, on Zion, His holy hill, and He carries an iron scepter, and He'll dash you to pieces if you don't bow to Him. Psalm 2 is a pretty simple message. Kiss the Son or die. That's basically the, the theme. Kiss the Son or die. Rage against the Lord and His Christ, and you will meet disaster. But the comfort for the people of God is, as people rage against the Lord and His Christ, they won't win. King Jesus won't lose. That's the comfort in this prayer. But what's really interesting here is the church makes connections between the raging Gentiles, the peoples, the kings and rulers gathered against the Lord and His Christ with four strange bedfellows mentioned in verse 27. Who was gathered against? God's Christ. It was Herod, a king. It was Pontius Pilate, a ruler, along with the Gentiles, the Roman authorities and executioners, 
and the peoples of Israel. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, chief priests, scribes, elders, they're all conspiring together to kill Jesus. And the church is applying Psalm 2 here and saying, the Jewish leadership has aligned herself with pagans. They may be the outward covenant people of God, but the truth is they've rejected God's covenant and His Christ and have thereby under a curse. They have no allegiance to King Jesus. And therefore, according to the logic of Psalm 2, this Sanhedrin group who just examined Peter and John, they are the wicked because the people of God are defined by a commitment to Christ. And where Christ isn't loved, adored, and served, you have no share in covenant mercies. Paul will elaborate on this principle further in Romans that not all who descended from Israel are Israel, but it's those with the faith of Abraham. But there's another interesting point here by quoting Psalm 2. The church is recognizing as Jewish leaders and others we'll see in the future persecute the church, who are they really persecuting? Well, Psalm 2 said their persecution or attack was against the Lord and His Christ. This prayer is acknowledging that they're attacking the church. But when you attack the church, what are you attacking? You're attacking the Lord and His Christ. Now that will be even more strikingly stated when Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as the Apostle Paul, is on his way to Damascus to afflict Christians, imprison them. And then the blinding light comes and a voice from heaven. You remember what it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? An attack on the people of God is an attack on Jesus. And in our text, the church recognizes that. They see we are identified with Christ, and therefore we expect earthly conspiracies to come against us. However, just as Jesus triumphed through His resurrection, what's going to happen to the church? They're going to triumph. That's the comfort. King Jesus will prevail, and anyone who's attached to Him will prevail. So everything that these men are trying to accomplish in their evil will be overturned. Well, the indication of that is to recognize nothing happening here is outside of the providence and the sovereignty of God. Why did these four strange bedfellows do what they did? Verse 28, They did whatever your hand, O sovereign Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. God's hand governs everything. He has a plan. He has a decree and it will be accomplished. Don't bristle at the word predestination because without that, it's all chaos. The Lord has established a plan and that plan is what is going to happen. Gospel enemies, just as in Jesus' day, they never act like they're being ruled by God. They're trying to throw off His rule. But they can't. They can't throw off of His rule. And ultimately, even if they're drooling with hatred and spitting at you, all they can ever do is accomplish what God has determined would take place. Now, it's not that God merely saw what they were going to do beforehand. No, He predestined the actions of these wicked people for His purpose and He rules. God is never thwarted by those who hate Him. They just do what He planned. What a frustrating thing to be the devil and his minions. Or a wicked person. 
you hate God with every atom of your being. And all you can do is do what He plans. Well, the psalmist once put it, even the wrath of man will praise Him. Rebellious people don't accept God's will, but they can't escape God's will. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the actions of the wicked are somehow good. They're not. Killing Jesus was the most horrific evil ever committed. But God is bringing good out of evil. So what these men meant for evil, God overturns it for the good of His people. And the church is taking comfort in that truth. The present difficulty is painful. Persecution is coming. But you can expect, while these threats are going to morph into terror, your Father governs all. Or how did the song put it that we sang? And if you haven't really taken 676 in your hymn book to heart, I really plead with you to do it. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Why? Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I've no cause for worry or for fear. Are you trusting in your Father's wise bestowment? Can we praise Him in our pain because we, we know He rules? Fourthly, consider and equip. 29 and 30. Not until all this adoration and praise is offered to God as Creator, Revealer, Ruler, Redeemer do we finally get an actual request. But the request is not protect us. Stop it. Stop the persecution. Bring the threats to an end. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying here that it's never appropriate to pray, Lord, please bring an end to this trial. Jesus prayed for the bitter cup to be removed. It wasn't God's will. Paul prayed for the thorn of the flesh to be taken away. That wasn't God's will either. Hannah prays that her barren womb would be granted a baby, and it was. Elijah prays that it would rain. And it did. There are times when God's people pray, like at the Exodus, Lord, look upon our suffering and take action. So you can pray that. But are your prayers only that? Get me out of this. I think we, we all, including myself, we all need a little biblical realism brought to our praying. That the thing that we need is not necessarily for the trial to stop. That's what they're praying here. They don't pray here that the Lord would give them relief. They pray that they would have resolve. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness. Don't let us back down. Don't allow us to be cowered into silence. Grant us Your grace to see Your supremacy and our mission under Your hand in spite of their angry words, empower us, O Lord, to testify of Christ with boldness, with freedom, with openness. Don't allow us to stumble, but give us courage. Give us clarity. Look at here the way warfare works. The world, moved by the devil, comes at the church with threats, with imprisonments, eventually with, with murder, and the church goes back at the world with prayer and proclamation. Our warfare is fought in a different way. We pray and we preach. 
Well, brethren, is this prayer shaping our priorities? We live in a time, I don't have to tell you, where threats and intimidation tactics are being levied against Christians, canceling them, finding something said 10 years ago to use to malign them. Will we compromise our message? Will we accommodate an anti-Christ culture so that we stop calling for repentance or we stop using the name of Jesus? Or we speak as though God's demands are up for discussion. And you can do things differently than what God says in His Word. Or do we reject the exclusivity of the gospel? That it's Christ alone. When persecutions arise, there's always a temptation to fall away because of the persecution and to sully the message, to confuse the message. Well, brethren, will we refuse to do that? This is not an act of bravado. This is the church praying. Give us grace to speak in spite of our fear. Make us faithful. And also, Lord, do works of wonders still. What occasioned the present persecution? It was the healing of someone from being lame. So if more healings are going to happen, what do you think is going to happen? More persecution. But don't take that away. Lord, come with power. Help us to speak and let your name be magnified. They don't seek the absence of trouble because God is using the trouble to save souls. Thousands have been converted in this scene. As we saw last week, suffering and success go hand in hand. Make us faithful. But then finally see, and, and briefly, condescension and filling. Verse 31, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. It's the language of an earthquake like the one at Philippi. Uh, with Paul and Silas in jail, or the earthquake when Jesus comes back. Or more memorably in the Old Testament, something that's already happened, when God descended on Mount Sinai, the earth shook. What is God saying when that happens? He's saying He's with His people. They are afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair, because the Lord is with them. And indeed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This filling is not some kind of second Pentecost. It's a filling that provides fresh empowerment so that they did what? Continued to speak the word with boldness. God answered their prayer. And they went out and spoke boldly. The Spirit gave them power to overcome their fear and articulate the gospel with clarity. Well, do you and I need clarity in the face of confusion? Do we need courage when threats come against the church, are we praying that God would strengthen us against our fears and give us words full of grace and season with salt? That we would shine as lights as we hold out the word of life? And let me ask you this as we're talking about corporate prayer. You know, in the midst of corporate prayer, we do have a prayer that's called the prayer of illumination. I don't give it a title that. That's what we pray before we come to the word. We acknowledge that we must have God's help to understand the truth. But at what point do we actually pray for the preaching? You know, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians in that whole warfare section that you're aware of, he closes it out saying this, Pray also for me, that words be given to me in the opening 
of my mouth. I, I take great comfort that the Apostle Paul prayed for words. Pray that words would be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Do you pray as a church for boldness in the preacher? Do you want someone in the pulpit who is one of my favorite phrases by J.C. Ryle, a nothing Arian? He believes nothing. He says nothing. Well, that doesn't seem to offend anybody. Do you want that? Or do you want boldness in the truth? Boldness as the wonder of God's grace is declared. Do you pray for it? I've been called a steward of the mysteries of God, and it's my task in this local body to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, to be a herald, to speak for the King, to call men to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I tell you, brethren, I'm not sufficient for that task. And I need the people of God, just as Paul did, to pray. I'm a jar of clay. I'm conscious of my weakness. So what should the church do? Unite together in calling out in one accord for the mouthpiece to have the power of the Spirit to preach. And may we all cry out for a fresh empowerment of the Holy Spirit to speak God's Word motivated by prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as a people would have a habit of prayer. We pray it would be reflected even in our corporate midweek prayer gathering, that we would make petitions to You that come out in copious praise and a desire for boldness. Lord, we pray that You would give us holy resolve in a wicked world that surrounds us to stand for Christ and speak for Christ. Lord, You alone can do this in us. You can make us have the courage that we need to have. So Lord, hear us and help us, for we look to You and we pray this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.